Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey everyone, Ray here. Don't worry, I've got your summer reading covered. Do you remember when I had Damian Lewis on in his book, Churchill's Great Escapes, Seven Incredible Escapes Made by World War II Heroes? Well, that's now out in paperback this May. The stories represent the spirit, daring, and heroism of Britain's unbreakable SAS soldiers. Award-winning author and war reporter Damon Lewis has written a must-read for students of World War II. These stories of escape and survival illustrate the basic tenets of behind-the-line evasion techniques that are used in today's modern warfare. Spanning from the earliest years of the Second World War until its final stages, you'll find these remarkable soldiers on death-defying odysseys that foiled the enemy, tested their stamina, earned each of them a revered place in military history, and helped win the war. So if you liked movies like The Great Escape and Where Eagles Dare, you will love Churchill's Great Escapes from Kensington Publishing, available everywhere books are sold, and again, now out in paperback. Programming note, it's mea culpa time. So, I screwed up. The episode about to be told takes place on a Thursday, August 13th, not August 14th morning, as I said in the last episode. Very sorry about that, but that means that all the drama we've covered so far took place in even less time than I have described, which will help explain some of the mistakes you're about to hear. So, Admiral Seifert's Force Z left Burroughs Force X at 7 p.m. August 12th. And everything from that moment on that has been covered took place on the evening of August 12th and in the early morning hours of August 13th. Such was the hell that was the last leg of Operation Pedestal. Hello. Thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 416, The Terrifying Had Become Commonplace. Last time, as the sun rose on August 13th, the lead ships, now 150 miles or 241 kilometers from Malta, the freighter Wairama had just become the latest victim, thanks to two Ju-88 fast bombers. Just after the massive explosion, the majority of her crew were gone, but around 30 men were lifted into the air and thrown over the side by the blast that had just killed their comrades. But as the saying goes, life is for the living. Those survivors now had to figure out how to survive this latest nightmare. Everyone close enough to see what had just happened to the massive freighter were shocked into silence. Lieutenant Dennis Barton on the tanker Ohio's Bridge would write, It was one of the grimmest things I have ever seen. And others shared his sentiment. One moment the freighter was there, the largest that pedestal had, and then it wasn't. 
Some of those in shock were the men of the destroyer Leadbury, the warship closest to the now-gone Wairama. Within seconds, the Leadbury received a short message from the Granite Admiral Burrow. Rescue survivors, but do not go into flames. But Lieutenant Commander Roger Percival Hill of the Leadbury had his own ideas. Having been a part of convoys PQ-15, 16, and the doomed 17, Hill no longer trusted the shore staff who directed operations at sea. No, from now on, he would do things his way. But a Captain Jack Boom put it differently when he said Hill would have made an excellent, if humane, pirate. In other words, orders for him were only suggestions. And at this moment, those men of the Wairama were within the flames. Hence, that's where Hill and the Leadbury were going. Suddenly, as the Leadbury disappeared into the flames and smoke, everyone on board the other ships around them who had witnessed this went silent. The only sounds now were coming from the vessels and the waves. But it was at this moment, at 8.15 a.m., when the same Euchres that had struck the Wairama now went after the Rochester Castle. She was sailing beside the Melbourne Star as both ships were just behind the Wairama. As the cruiser Charybdis was near the Rochester Castle, both of those ships threw up everything they had to attempt to distract or unnerve the German pilots coming their way. The bombs dropped, landed near the Rochester, but there were no direct hits. Still, the resulting geysers hid the target ship for several seconds. When she emerged from all this, cheers were about to erupt when all noticed that there were massive fires all about the ship. The applause stopped mid-clap and the silence returned, followed by prayers. For the next 40 minutes, the crew of the Rochester Castle, led by Chief Officer Arthur Colpin, fought the flames, even throwing cargo deck, already aflame, over the side. Equally quick-acting, the chief engineer flooded the small arms magazine. No sense in letting thousands of rounds explode. Overall, the ship, though it looked like a wreck, was still in one piece. And as for her speed, that had not slackened even for a moment. And yet, there was another event before the Leadbury reached the survivors of Wairama. Such was the pace and proximity of the attack. When the Wairama exploded and began to sink, the Melbourne Star had been just 400 yards behind her, the result being much of the Wairama, now in pieces, started landing on the Melbourne Star. At that moment, the ship's master, Captain David McFarlane, was atop the monkey bridge, or flying bridge, the deck located directly above the navigating bridge and the highest accessible part of the ship and watched as his vessel headed right into the flames. The ship's momentum made it so. McFarlane ordered hard to port, but they were still going in, and as that was the case, the captain ordered full speed. Might as well make this a short trip through hell, and though it was a short trip, had the captain stayed up there, he would have been incinerated as the vessel was covered by flame, not unlike a blanket of fire. To the captain and crew, their time in this hell felt like years, but in truth, it only lasted for minutes. 
but that was long enough to set the lifeboats on both sides aflame, not to mention peel the ship's paint off. And still, fearful of the flames, Captain McFarlane ordered all hands to head forward, for should there be an explosion, that was the place farthest from, which is when another German plane came right at the stricken, burning ship. Just before the pilot dropped another stick of bombs, 33 crewmen, running from the aft section, jumped overboard, as they assumed the bomb would either land on them or cause a massive explosion. And just after the men landed in the water and momentarily disappeared, the Melbourne Star emerged from the flames to the cheers of many. Those still on board ran back to their guns, the Borfors, Ehrlichens, and Six-Inch Guns. As for the men of the Melbourne Star in the water, they were soon mixing with the men in the water from the Wairama. And one of those in the water was the convoy's youngest man, 17-year-old Freddie Treves. The Wairama's captain, R.S. Pierce, as it is custom, put the young Treves with a more experienced merchant sailor, 63-year-old steward Bob Beaudry. As Bob had told his wife not too long ago, if my sons are going to be in this war, I'm going too. Now back to Freddie, times being what they were, he joined the Pangborn Nautical College at age 13 and graduated at age 17 in June of 1942. Not only was Pedestal his first convoy, he had been at sea for an entire 16 days. Well, now he was in the thick of it, and just before the explosion that would doom the Wairama, the older Bob had just thrown his body over the younger Freddy. But clearly, they could not stay here, so both jumped overboard when about 60 feet from the water. Freddy had forgotten the lesson of jumping off the side of the ship that was, you know, closer to the water. But the stunned Bob had simply followed the younger man. They landed okay, but that was not the problem. The older Bob could not swim. When both men resurfaced, they had been a bit separated, but the 17-year-old Freddie, an excellent swimmer, started hearing shoutings like, I can't swim, I'm drowning. Freddie's instincts kicked in. He grabbed the first man closest to him, a wireless operator, John Jackson. Freddie pulled this man for about five minutes before finding a piece of floating wood to put Jackson with. Jackson would later say, I'm quite sure that I definitely owe my life to this cadet. And then, Freddie heard more screaming, and when he turned his head, his world stopped. There was Bob Beaudry, standing on a raft that was being sucked back into the flames. By now, Freddie had come to love old Bob. He was kind and showed him the ropes, which is priceless to a young man. But Bob was too far away, and he was getting closer to the flames faster than Freddie could get to him. Freddie would later say, It was a picture I'll never be able to forget. Knowing that he could never tow that heavy raft, he continued, I turned over and swam away. This has haunted me all my life. I was a coward. He had done everything for me, and I didn't do anything for him. But what Freddie did not say was that, for his protection, he had been wearing a kapoke. Think of a giant rubber onesie. And that's not an exaggeration. Look it up. 
K-A-P-O-K. This is what he was wearing at the time. The point is, in this situation, Freddie had most things working against him, and still, he could only obsess about the one man he could not save. Leave it up to a 17-year-old to hate himself for not being able to do the impossible. Still, Freddie went on to save several lives that day. In time, he would be awarded the British Empire Medal and the Lloyd's War Medal for bravery at sea. Again, it had been his first voyage. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Commander Roger Hill of the Leadbury did the exact opposite of Burroughs' orders. First, he got the ratings to use their water hose to push away the burning oil from the victims. Next, he had Charlie Musham, a gunner, take four rowers, get into the whaler, and save as many men as possible, as there were men from two ships out there, the Wairama and Melbourne Star. Now, risking a few of your men to save victims is one thing. But to risk your entire ship and its crew for one man, a kitchen boy no less, is insane. But that's what Hill did when he had the Leadbury get closer to the flames to save one Alan Bennett, a 17-year-old scullion or kitchen boy. But clearly, Hill's crew were of the same mind. A cook tore off his apron and heavy boots and dove in the water to save even more though they were mostly badly burned. But in a crisis, one thing at a time. Soon, 42 survivors had been recovered, 18 from Wairama and 24 from Melbourne Star. Of course, by this time, the convoy was 30 miles ahead. As for the 14 men of the Melbourne Star, who had previously jumped overboard when that German plane was bearing down on them, they were lost when all that could be done had been done, the Leadbury took off at full speed to catch up. But, in a taste of what the day would hold, at 10.50 a.m., seven JU-88s bombed the Leadbury. The ship's log recorded the usual near misses, as if it was a typical Tuesday. It wasn't. It was a Thursday. Point is, the terrifying had become the commonplace. 
The next big air attack came soon enough. But on this day, the Luftwaffe and Regia Aeronautica would show how brilliant, brave, and yet stupid they were. As the main body of the convoy was close enough to Malta, the Axis knew that air power from the island would be over the convoy's vessels. So, nine JU-88s were sent to raid Malta, the idea being to keep the Spitfires there, there. While this was going on, a much larger formation was making for the merchant ships. Another clever move, though as old as time itself, was the diversionary attack. A small group of planes approached the main part of the convoy from the port side or left side. This made sense as they were coming from Sicily to the north, but in truth, a larger formation had already entered the area to approach the ships from the starboard or right side, while the port gunners were busy blasting at the supposed threat with everyone else on the starboard side watching them. Of the 26 JU-88s coming at the Ohio, one of the Junkers in front was hit by flak. It went down, but not straight down, and the result was one in a million. The twin-engine fast bomber hit the surface of the Mediterranean, who rejected it, and the plane bounced back up, up enough to land on the foredeck of the Ohio. Another JU-88 landed bombs close enough to the front of the ship that her four-peak tank, the extreme forward lower compartment, there's one in the rear as well to keep the vessel level, was opened up, allowing water to flood immediately. Not 30 minutes later, eight more JU-88s came in, these flown by Italian pilots who called their ships woodpeckers. The result would be more near misses and more damage. But one pilot, Sergeant Oscar Raimondo, who managed to get his bombs away, was hit by the Ohio guns just aft. That resulted in his plane crash landing on the poop deck, or the deck aft of the ship's superstructure, again, of the Ohio. A crewman in the stern, Doug Gray, phoned Master Dudley Mason on the bridge. Gray told his superior of this second uh, one-in-a-million event. Wait a second. But the master answered back with a touch of something in his voice. Oh, that's nothing. We've had a JU-88 on the foredeck for nearly half an hour. Operation Pedestal, known for many things, should also be known for canceling out that expression, one in a million. The cruiser Kenya got her own attention at 9.41, but at 10 a.m., more JU-88s went after the Ohio. Like before, there were plenty of near misses, though no planes landed on her this time. But the cumulative attacks got results. Two electric fuel pumps gave up the ghost, with the main engines coming to a stop. By 10.30 a.m., the Ohio was dead in the water. The engineers got to work as best they could using flashlights or torches. As for the stupid reference made earlier... It had been decided by the powers that be, instead of focusing everything the Axis had in the area to go after and finish off pedestal, those same planes, subs, ships, and e-boats would be split to bring an end to not only pedestal, but also Admiral Seifert's Force Z on its way back to Gibraltar. Thus, Flieger Corps II, well, the half that went after Seifert's ships, 
sank nothing, whereas they could have been used to overwhelm Force X, Admiral Burrow, and the Merchantmen. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The same air attack that started around 9.41 a.m. that morning that damaged the Ohio also saw the Dorset laid into. But I'll let apprentice Desmond Dickens tell the story. At 9.45 a.m., there came a heavy air attack, indeed, by Stukas. They circled around for a minute or so and then decided to attack Dorset and Ohio, which were easier to attack than the other ships. Six went to deal with the Dorset and three others to Ohio. Down they came, lower and lower. We gave them all we had, but still they came screeching louder and louder. Then they let go their bombs. One could see them coming straight for us. Amidst the awful whine and din, I prayed harder than ever before, and God heard those prayers, for not one bomb hit the ship directly. Three went on either side, and the ship was lifted right out of the water six times. Please, God, prayed the man at the wheel. As soon as this terrific bombardment was over, a brief inspection of Dorset's engine room was made, but it was found useless to do anything. Water was pouring in from a gaping hole on the starboard side, and the generators were completely wrecked. Number four hatch was ablaze in the lower hold, so the order to abandon ship was given. Back to Desmond, we had done all we could, but they had got us at last. The boats were lowered, and it was fortunate that all the crew were picked up by HMS destroyer Brahman. Indeed, the Brahman and Dorset had just caught up to the Ohio when the attack started. But even with the Dorset lost and the Ohio further damaged, it was worse than young Desmond could know. Spitfires from Malta had been patrolling overhead, and when they saw the attacking planes, they went in close, knowing that death by friendly fire was a real possibility. One Spitfire pilot, John Major, wrote, We waited up sun, but the swine came in, down sun. Bags of flak. We dived through and fired short bursts of one second each at three JU-87s. Observed strikes on tail of one. I saw two JU-88s making for the largest ship, peeled off through flak to make head-on attack. I was hopelessly out of range, but fired to scare them. It did. They dropped bombs far wide of targets and turned away. I followed. Rear gunner poured a tracer at me, and I took a poor view of it. Ran out of ammunition. 
Alas, during this exchange, one Spitfire was downed by the guns of Dorset and Australian pilot Bob Boutin. In vain, one officer on the Dorset, NLO Lieutenant Peter Bernard, had been yelling for the gunners to stop, but they could not hear him, nor did they want to. Few gunners had seen an Allied plane in the last few days, hence any plane overhead had to be the enemy and deserved their full attention. Bernard continued, This sort of mishap might have been avoided had the British ships possessed phones between the gunners and the bridge. They did not, however. Supporting this, Ron Linton, an Ehrlichon gunner on the Dorset, would say, We are told, if you see a plane, it's the enemy, so shoot it. We believed we had no air cover. Before too long, there would be another formation of enemy planes overhead, and these Savoia Sparrowhawk torpedo bombers were being led by the most experienced crews of the Regia Aeronautica. As for the doomed Dorset, the plan had been to get everyone off and then to set off scuttling charges. But because of a miscommunication, those charges were left in the flooded part of the ship. So like other ships of pedestal, the Dorset was aflame, but still floating. The Brahmin took the Dorset's crew and raced away, hoping to catch up to the remaining ships of pedestal. Next time, just in case you are not yet fully impressed with Commander Gibbs and the crew of the Pathfinder, the man on the bridge was getting just a little too tired of being attacked by enemy planes. Subs were one thing. You just had to dodge the torpedoes they sent your way. No, the planes were becoming a pain in the ass and taking out too many merchantmen. So, during the late morning, as yet another wave of German and Italian planes were coming their way, Gibbs decided enough was enough. He was going to take the fight to them. Postscript. Frederick Freddie Treves, the 17-year-old merchantman and hero, was from a medical family. His father had been a physician, and his great-uncle was Frederick Treves, the surgeon who became famous for discovering Joseph Merrick, the Elephant Man. After the war, our Freddie would go on to become a successful actor in such things as All Creatures Great and Small, the original series, Monarch of the Glen, Yes, Prime Minister, The Avengers, again, the original TV series, and fittingly enough, The Elephant Man. Frederick Freddie Treves died in 2012, age 86. And lastly, I would like to thank those who have recently donated or become members. Let's see, as far as donations, trying to get me through this rather troubling time, it's really appreciated. Let's see here, Connor Kelly, Jim Frauenberg, Ian Sturk, Adam Farkas, uh, Simon Cooper, Frank Wilkins, and Stephen Mullet, uh, or Mullet from Melbourne, Australia. Sorry about that, Steve. Let's see here the latest members Margot Rothlisberger, um, Sugar Grove, Illinois, Scott Kane from Cincinnati, Ohio, Lowell Larson from Byron, Illinois. 
Chris Metting from, is it Poteet, Texas? Poteet, I'm not sure how to say that. Sorry, Chris. Uh, Gregory Buffkin from Franklin, North Carolina. Thank you, Gregory. Steve Grigg from Sydney, Australia. And Simon Cooper from Battery Point, Tasmania, the little island off the coast in the south of Australia. And Roy Burnham had bought a mug. So thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. It is very much appreciated. Take care, everyone. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.